Good afternoon, and welcome to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and we're live for an hour each weekday afternoon with a phone line open for you, so you can call in and uh, participate in the program if you have uh, questions about the Bible or about Christianity that you'd like to bring up for conversation. That's what we'll do. You, you call, and we'll converse. Likewise, if you have a different point of view from the host, whether it's a different Christian view or maybe a view that's not Christian at all that you hold, uh, feel free to call and we can uh, discuss that as well if you want. The number to call is 844-484-5737. Once again, 844-484-5737. The only announcement I have is one I've been making all week, and that is that uh, day after tomorrow, Saturday evening, uh, there's going to be a debate streamed onto YouTube, which you can listen to if you want to. Uh, it's about, uh, is the, the subject is, is Christianity true? And I'll be debating against uh, uh, Max, the atheist, who calls sometimes. And if you're a regular longtime listener, you've heard him many times on the program as a caller. And uh, we've never really been able to have an extended discussion because, obviously, this program, we try to get as many calls in as we can. Uh, Even when he calls in, if I'd love to talk to him for a whole hour, there's people waiting behind him. It's uh, simply not fair to them to give over much time to one caller. So um, he he requested that we have a debate, and I thought, well, that sounds good. And he set it up, and we'll be doing it this Saturday night. Uh, It's at 5 o'clock Pacific time uh, in the evening. If you'd like to join us, uh, as far as I know, there's no problem uh, watching the live stream on YouTube. And if you want to know where that is, well, you can go to our website, thenarrowpath.com. Look under announcements, and you'll see the, uh, the link there. That's at thenarrowpath.com under announcements. Also, if you go to our, uh, our uh, Facebook page, which is Steve Gregg, The Narrow Path, uh, there's a, a link to it from there as well. It's posted there. So we're hoping uh, hoping everyone who wants to hear it will be able to find out how to do so. That's this Saturday night, 5 p.m. Pacific time, streamed on YouTube. Okay, well, let's talk to uh, Eric from Compton, California, first of all. Hi, Eric. Welcome. Hi, Steve. Uh, my question is, I was told that the book of Matthew was written was the only book in the New Testament written in Hebrew. It was written in Hebrew. The rest were Koine Greek. How do I verify? My question is, what language was it written in, and how do I verify that? Where can I go to verify it? Well, the uh, – I'm sorry. I, I, I was going to – I accidentally hit a button that hung up on you. I didn't want to do that. But um, anyway, uh, if you're still listening, uh, which I'm sure you are, uh, it is believed – that Matthew wrote his first draft of the gospel in, uh, well, it's Papias, the church father, around the turn of the first century, and also Irenaeus, around 170 A.D. Both of them say that Matthew wrote what it was called the Logia, uh, which is the, the sayings of Jesus, in Hebrew. And then, but that, most scholars don't believe that the Logia <clears throat> that Matthew wrote in Hebrew is exactly the same as the Gospel of Matthew that we have now, because all, all evidence is that the Gospel of Matthew, as we have it, was written in Greek. We have no, no Hebrew uh, precursors uh, available to the Greek manuscripts, and it does look like uh, the entire New Testament was written in Greek. Uh, 
But uh, but the Gospel of Matthew, as it appears in Greek in our New Testament, uh, was apparently developed from an earlier document that Matthew wrote that was, may, have on, may have only contained a collection of the sayings of Jesus. It's hard to say, but, uh, but, but Papias, who was a church father, who knew, some people think he studied under the Apostle John, uh, although there's, from what I've read of Papias' own words, I'm not sure that he did, but he was awfully close uh, to the Apostles. He at least knew people who knew the Apostles, and uh, he was very close to the original writers of the, of the New Testament. And he said, that Matthew wrote the Logia in Hebrew, and he said, and every man translated it as best he could. Not sure exactly what that latter part means. Uh, then Irenaeus also repeats that information. Now, when he used the word Hebrew, most scholars think he's actually referring to Aramaic because uh, Old Testament Hebrew was not really widely used in the, uh, in the time of Christ and afterwards. Uh, the Jews in Palestine it is believed spoke mostly Aramaic, which is very similar to Hebrew. It's a, it, you know, it's Syriac, and um, it's kind of a combination of Hebrew and Syriac. And so most believe that when Papias said Hebrew, he meant Aramaic, which is not a problem. Uh, but no, we don't have anywhere that original Syriac or Hebrew uh, writing from the pen of Matthew. Just like we don't have the original Greek documents written of the other books, but the oldest manuscripts we have of all the books uh, would suggest they were all written in Greek. So uh, that, that simply means that Matthew apparently did write something in Hebrew or Aramaic, uh, possibly just a, a collection of the sayings of Jesus, though it might have included more. But we don't have that document now. But it probably, the reason that Matthew's Greek gospel has his name on it would most reasonably be that he wrote that. Maybe after he wrote the Aramaic version of the sayings of Jesus, he expanded it out to add narrative so that we have, uh, you know, we have the present Gospel of Matthew. Um, where do you find that info? Well, you could find almost anywhere uh, on the Internet. Just look for, uh, you know, do, do a search for uh, Matthew's Gospel. And almost anywhere, uh, I would assume maybe even Wikipedia, places like that, would, would mention, you know, that it, the Aramaic was mentioned by Papias and by Irenaeus earlier. So uh, it doesn't really matter too much whether he did because we don't have that document in Aramaic. Uh, we only have the gospel according to uh, Matthew, like the other New Testament books in Greek, as our oldest documents. Okay, uh, let's talk to uh, John from Dallas, Texas. John, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hi, Steve. I'm looking forward to your upcoming debate with Max from Portland, but I wanted to talk briefly about your debate last weekend on YouTube about uh, some different dispensational topics. Okay. Uh, I just wanted to, wanted to see how your how you thought the debate went, and if uh, an opportunity arose to do another debate with Standing for Truth Ministries, if, if you would do so. Thanks. Yeah, uh, well, I don't know if, uh, I don't know anything about Standing for Truth Ministries except that uh, a, we had that debate uh, on that podcast, and B, uh, the man I debated apparently has done other debates with other people uh, at that podcast. Now, I actually had a good impression of the moderator, and he's he's apparently the only you know regular participant on the podcast. Apparently, it's his podcast, and I thought he did a good job moderating. 
um, if if uh, Dave, the guy that debated me, is uh, a frequent debater on there, then I would probably look elsewhere for quality uh, debates uh, because, honestly, I felt like, I, I don't know, I, I don't want to be unkind, but I felt like I was in a battle of wits against an unarmed man. Uh, he really didn't seem to have any... Uh, thing to go on. He's just, uh, and he didn't seem to know how to even put his thoughts uh, into an understandable form. Now, uh, he got nervous. We have to admit that. He was, uh, he didn't seem very nervous at the beginning, but as soon as it was very clear that uh, his points were not being well made and they were being well refuted, he seemed to get, uh, he acted a little cornered, I guess, and, and then he got a little more, I thought, irrational and emotional and abusive and things like that, like, like people do if they're not very mature and they feel threatened. Uh, I didn't threaten him. Uh, I mean, he's the one who wanted to debate me. I didn't ask him to debate me. I, I never go looking for a debate. But, uh, you know, that's, I, I just felt like it was not well matched. Uh, if I debate a dispensationalist ever again, I hope it'll be a better uh, representative of that view uh, and one who... I don't know, one who can keep his cool, one who can state his positions clearly, one that can actually address the points I make and refute them if he can. You know, I, I like a debate where both sides are quite capable. I don't like a debate where one person is really not very capable. And I have to say, I've been in some debates like that, though I uh, certainly my favorite debates are those uh, that I've been involved in that where my opponent is at least my equal uh, in terms of his expertise on his position and is, um, and is somebody I like, frankly. Uh, m many of the debates we have posted on our website between me and other people are against people that I really like. I mean, in, in a lot of cases, uh, my opponent and I have had, uh, you know, had a meal together prior to the debate or afterwards. And uh, as far as I know, would still be on good terms if we met today. I, I like it best when I debate somebody who's likable um, uh, because, I mean, then it, there's no temptation to be abusive uh, on either side. Um, so anyway, th th those are my thoughts about it. Would I do another debate on uh, standing for truth mysteries? Well, I, I might. I, I might. It really depends on who who my opponent would be and what the subject would be. Uh, again, I'm, I'm not, I mean, I've done quite a few debates, obviously, uh, but I'm not a person who's out to make a reputation for myself as a debater. I'm not. I'm a. I'm a Bible teacher. Uh, I've learned to teach the Bible in the context of multiple controversies, some of which I held the other side about uh, in previous years of my life, and I came out of those sides. But um, I, I would. I'm never shy about debating, but I, I. I don't want to go pick a fight with somebody. So would I do it again? I, I usually accept. I usually accept invitations, but. The, uh, you know, they're coming often enough now that I might have to turn some down merely because uh, I don't know or maybe respect the other side, the guy on the other side. I want to debate someone I respect. Actually, somebody right now is trying to set up a debate uh, between myself and Dr. Michael Brown, and that will be a good one. <clears throat> There's a large church in Fresno that's willing to host it, and uh, that is being negotiated now. Whether it'll come about or not, I'm not sure, but I think it will. And we'll be, we'll be debating about Israel, I'm sure. Uh, now, Michael Brown is a scholar that I truly do respect. I've respected him for years. So, and, and, I, and he's a very 
uh, what should I say, courteous. He's a very courteous man. And I try to be courteous too. So it'd be, it, it would be a non-contentious uh, kind of a debate, I would hope. And, I, and I, I would expect that to be a high level and enjoyable debate rather than a cat fight or something, you know, which is great. Anyway, that, that may be coming up. So <clears throat> I guess that's, that'd be as my full answer <laughs> to your question about that. Yeah, 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 I agree with you. I think Donnie did a great job of moderating. You know, he only jumped in a couple of times when he felt he needed to, which did happen once or yeah. twice. But, uh, yeah, your, your opponent, yeah, your counterpart in the debate was definitely outmatched. And Yeah, but uh, you handled yourself well, as, as expected from your, you know, your listeners would expect. And, yeah, I'm looking forward to the next one. So, so great job. Great. Thanks for what you do. All right. All right. Well, God bless you, John. Thanks for your call. Uh, yeah, the next one is this Saturday night, as I mentioned, and you can find out about that at our website, thenarrowpath.com, uh, under announcements. Chris from Pennsylvania is next. Chris, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hi, Steve. How you doing, Steve? Fine, thanks. I have a question. Um, I was speaking to someone, and uh, I, go to a, uh, I go to a regular church, not an evangelical church. But I met a man, and he told me that I must be born again. And I've heard that expression, but I've never been fully understanding of it. <laughs> okay. Okay, well, let me discuss that. Um, <clears throat> uh, when he said, you must be born again, of course, that's exactly what Jesus said when he was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He said, a man has to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God and in order to enter the kingdom of God. He said in verses 3 and 5 of John 3. Um, but what does that mean? Well, that's a really good question. Now, sometimes evangelical Christians throw that phrase around a lot and don't realize that it's not a self-explanatory phrase. In fact, when Jesus shared it with one of the leading rabbis of Israel, Nicodemus, um, the man didn't know what it meant at all. So, I mean, we, we who are evangelicals and talk about being born again, we better make sure that we, you know, that our listener, if we're, if we're hoping to communicate something about it, knows what that means. Now, what does it mean? I believe what it means is that we need to receive new life, just like a child, when a child is born, comes into a new life in the world. They come into a new world, really, from the world of the womb into the world of, you know, daily living under the sun. And uh, so this is being born again is when we pass from our, the darkness of our earlier existence into the light and life of, of God, frankly, that we, we receive new life at the time we're born again. And this is uh, the life that the Holy Spirit gives. The Bible indicates that the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of a, a, a person who, when, they're, when they receive that new life and, and they do receive that new life through the presence of the Holy Spirit. This makes us something of a different species of human beings because, I mean, we're still human, uh, you know, human beings, uh, homo sapiens, uh, biologically, but we have a new element of life that we did not have before, and that is the life of God living in us. And, and coming into that life is analogous to a child coming into the life of, of the present world at birth. So being born again, in my opinion, is actually a metaphor for passing from uh, spiritual death into our spiritual life. Now, how is that done? Well, 
that's done simply by becoming a follower of Christ. And that is done, uh, according to Peter, as follows. Um, in, for, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter preached his first sermon, uh, the people said, what must we do? And Peter said, well, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, notice he said you have to repent and, and then get baptized, and, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is how that life comes to be. The, the Holy Spirit is the one who imparts that life. So the, the Holy Spirit coming in is, in my opinion, what being reborn refers to. That's where you become, you receive a new life, the life of God. Uh, Peter, later in his second epistle, Second Peter chapter 1 and uh, verse 4, he said that uh, we, we have become partakers of the divine nature. And by this, he must certainly mean when we came into the life of God, when we're born of God, when the Holy Spirit regenerates us and makes us a new creation, then we now have the divine nature. We have the, the nature of God implanted in us and imparted to us. Now, prior to receiving the Holy Spirit, Peter talks about repenting and, bab and being baptized. Uh, repenting means you change your mind. Now, about what? Well, you see, the, the message of the gospel is that Jesus is the Lord, which means the owner. He, he's the master. He's the king. Now, before a person is a Christian, uh, they do not recognize his kingship. I mean, they might verbally recognize it. There's people who are raised in churches who all their life have said, yeah, okay, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is king. But if that's not something that that describes their commitments and how they live, then that's then they need to repent of that. In other words, when you are not a believer in Christ, or when you believe with only your mind but you don't follow Christ, then you have a mindset that is uh, saying basically you don't have to obey Christ. You can live your own life. You can make your own decisions, follow your own dreams, follow your own agendas, do your own thing. But when you convert, that's changing your mind about those things. That's when you take the lordship of Jesus actually seriously. Paul said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Now, confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Paul assumes that you understand. He means meaning it. It has to really mean that to you. You have to recognize his lordship. And, uh, and, and of course, by confessing his lordship, you are submitting to it. You're agreeing to it. You're embracing it. So conversion or being born again requires that you embrace Christ as your king, which means that's a way you're going to live. Uh, when you get baptized, what you're doing, that's like going through the birth canal. That's like, that's like being born of water, as it were. When a child is born, the water breaks and it comes through the water into the light. Uh, baptism is compared with that. It's also compared with passing, uh, being raised from the dead spiritually. Uh, but both, both ideas suggest, uh, you know, coming into the new life. And receiving the Spirit is the actual receiving of that new life and receiving the divine nature. So that's what being born again means, as I understand the, the concept. And uh, that's what evangelicals, I think, are referring to when they, when they speak that way. I appreciate your call. Let's talk to uh, Oliver from Atlanta, Georgia. Oliver, welcome to The Narrow Path. Hey, brother. Thank you so much for paying this price that um, 
has been able to bless so many people. I mean, for me, for sure. So I, I really do appreciate that. My Thank prayer you. is that my prayer is that eventually you'll um, see it um, profitable to do a long-term type of podcast. Like there's so many out there, but you have so much material that it would be such a blessing for, for more people. Well, that might happen. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, right? I'm pretty busy. I'm pretty busy already. And a, a long, I'm always surprised how long long form podcasts are. They're usually two or three hours, it seems to me. And I, uh, I could talk for that long, but I don't know if I could commit to a daily two or three hour <laughs> block of time for that more than what I'm already doing, you know. But anyway, right, thank right. you. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and I've listened to you for about three years now. And uh agree with just about everything that um you teach except for um except for the young earth creationism okay now now um i mean you've every every debate that i've heard from you you've basically wiped up everybody so i'm not going to debate you i just want to throw i just want to throw some stuff out at you sure um i'm a jeweler so in my paradigm the scientific process of gemstone formation takes hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years of pressure and heat, you know, crystallizing certain minerals. Um, But I'll concede I'm not a scientist, so I'm not going to argue that. But hermeneutically from scripture, if I could just throw out a couple of things. um, uh, In in the beginning of Genesis, God says, let there be, let there be, let there be light, let there be uh, an expanse. But in chapter 11, he says, let the earth sprout vegetation. And we all know the process of how vegetation grows. So I, I don't really think it's necessary to invoke some kind of time-lapse creation or some kind of, you know, esoteric um, stuff just pops into existence when he says, let the earth sprout vegetation. That's point one. And then point two, when God creates Eve, um, Adam says, this at last is bone of my bone. Some tra- translations say that Hapa'am is at long last. And I, I know for me, I, I'm an impatient guy, but within a day, he, he considers it, oh, finally, I've got a companion. So, I mean, what, what do you think about those two things? Well, uh, first of all, I'm not going to debate about the young or old earth either, because I don't have expertise in all the realms of science that are relevant to it. I, uh, my favoring of the young earth has to do with the way I uh, read the passage, realizing that there are other ways that, that it can be read, and also my understanding of uh, my limited understanding of uh, the scientific arguments that are sometimes made uh, for the young earth and for the old earth. And I, you know, so I mean, I, I bet those are not my expertise. My concern—I've I've made this point every time it's—you uh, know—I've ever addressed it. I don't really care if there's young Earth or old Earth, and I don't consider myself to be an expert on any of the <clears throat> subjects that would determine uh, for us that. So that's where I'm at. But uh, but let's just take the two points you made uh, from a young Earth perspective, which is the hat I wear. And um, you know, when you said we know how plants come, and and these plants were sprung out of the Earth, uh, and you said that doesn't really sound like what what that they came out of nothing or something like that well we don't know how plants come unless seeds uh are there and we don't know where seeds come from unless plants are there previously 
uh, we, you know, in order to have plants, you have to have seeds prior to that. In order to have to have seeds, you have to have plants prior to that. It's like what came first, the chicken or the egg, exactly the same conundrum with plants. Now, if God made uh, fully formed plants with having seed in itself, as he said, then that answers the question, what came first, the seed or the plant? Um, I don't think, uh, you know, any scientist can argue that the seed came before the plant because where did it come from? Where does the seed come from if not from a plant? So, I, you know, I don't know that we really have some kind of a, uh, you know, escape from special creation there. Uh, now, whether God made the seeds and let them grow, or, or more likely, it sounds to me, he made the plants and said that their fruit would have seed in themselves. I, I don't know. I mean, let's just say, uh, let's say we're not young earth. Let's say we believe this happened billions, hundreds of billions ago that, God, that these plants appeared. Well, they still had to come from seeds unless God created them out of nothing, uh, pretty much. Uh, or, or perhaps he could take elements that were already in the earth, like he did when he made the animals, and shape them and, and reorganize them and make, you know, take those elements and form them into the DNA that would be in a seed and it would grow a plant. I suppose, I, and and the same thing I would say about about the woman. What's well, a different thing, Ashley? I believe that the woman had to be created fairly soon after the man was. Um, but if if the man had spent the day naming hundreds, if not thousands, of animals all day long, and he finally had a woman, he might say, well, "Finally, you know, like I was looking all day long, and uh, none of these animals really were good, suitable mates." Now, finally, there is one. I, you know, just if he'd been doing that all day, then he might say, wow, finally, it's been a long day of searching. And now I found what I'm looking for. Anyway, those are thoughts I would have, but I, you know, I wouldn't uh, go to the mat about them. I don't have any reason to fight about them. I appreciate your call, brother. I'm out of time for this segment. We have another half hour coming up, though, so don't go away. The Narrow Path is listener supported. Our website is thenarrowpath.com. I'll be back in 30 seconds, so stay tuned. Tell your family, tell your friends, tell everyone you know about the Bible radio show that has nothing to sell you but everything to give you. And that's The Narrow Path with Steve Gregg. When today's radio show is over, go to your social media and send a link to thenarrowpath.com where everyone can find free topical audio teachings, blog articles, verse-by-verse teachings, and archives of all The Narrow Path radio shows. And tell them to listen live right here on the radio. Thank you for sharing listener-supported The Narrow Path with Steve Gregg. Welcome back to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and we're live for another half hour taking your calls. If you have questions about the Bible or the Christian faith, hearing from you is what we're here for. I will say this, our lines are full, so you might not be able to get in before we're done. But if you want to try, uh, the number is going to be, uh, you know, in a few minutes, the line will open up. You may get it. Uh, the number is 844 484 Fifty-seven, thirty-seven. That number again is eight four four, four eight four, fifty-seven, thirty-seven. 
Going back to the phones now, we're going to talk to Rhea from Michigan. Rhea, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hello. I have a question about the eight prayer watches. And the scripture that I have is Luke 12, 38, and it talks about specific times to pray. Also in Ezekiel 33, verse 6, it gives reference to if you're assigned a specific time to pray. So there are a lot of theories out about demons coming out at certain times of the night. I'm aware of Thessalonians men ought to always pray, but something about the eight prayer watches I've been reading in different manuals, and those are the two scriptures I can find. So I just wanted your view on that. Okay, well, I don't know about eight prayer watches. It's true that a watch in the night is considered to be three hours, and in a 24-hour period, you could divide that into eight, you know, periods of, uh, of, of three hours each. That'd be 24 hours. However, the word watch specifically means staying awake. And so I don't know if the daytime segments of the, uh, I don't know if the three-hour segments in the daytime are ever referred to as watches because people are generally assumed to be awake at that time. Jesus said, are there not 12 hours in the day in which we, uh, we can do all our work? The night is coming when no one can work. So he saw the nighttime as a different kind of time, unlike us, because we have electric lights and so forth. We can stay up all night if we want to, but people back then, that just wasn't reasonable. People would go to bed when the sun went down and get up and go to work when the sun came up. And that 12-hour period was divided into four watches of three hours each. Now, they were not divided that way for the sake of prayer times necessarily, although persons might have chosen to, uh, you know, get up and pray at a given watch of the night or to watch for three hours and pray. Uh, I mean, that'd be a personal choice. We don't have anything in the Bible teaching about that. Um, I, I think the watches probably had to do with when they would change the guards. You know, they, in the middle of the night, you don't want a guard on duty too long because he'll probably fall asleep. So that may be why they divided it into separate watches during the night. Uh, I'm not sure how that originated, to tell you the truth. But um, again, I've, I've never heard of the daytime segments of, uh, you know, ref- referred to as watches. And I'm not sure who does. I, I mean, I've, been, I've lived a long time. It's surprising if, if they are spoken of that way, that with all the reading I've done, I wouldn't have encountered that phrase. Um, So someone else must have come up with it. Uh, Somebody you've been listening to or reading, I guess. And I don't have any idea what they're saying about it. Um, You know, Jesus did say to the disciples, can you not watch with me one hour, which is a lot less than a whole watch of three hours. Uh, And Jesus does talk about people the master coming back in the third watch or something like that. You better be, the servants had better be ready for his appearance. You mentioned uh, Luke twelve thirty eight. It says, and if he should come in the second watch or come to the third watch and find them so, that is his servants serving their servants as they should, uh, blessed are those servants. Now, uh, he's not really talking about He's not really talking literally about Christians needing to be up till midnight or later uh, praying, although there's nothing wrong with having spending a whole night in prayer even, but that's not our obligation every night. If, if, 
if we have to be concerned that Jesus might come between 9 and 12 uh, or, uh, or, or whatever, uh, we might be, or between 6 or, or 12 and 3, which would be the second and third watch, then we're going to be in trouble because we're going to become nocturnal people. What he's doing, he's, he's giving an illustration from a household where the servants are, respect, are expected to be uh, alert to welcome the master when he comes, even if he comes in the middle of the night. That doesn't mean the, ser the servants can't necessarily um, fall asleep, although if they know the master's coming a given night, they probably would take turns staying up to watch for him so they could greet him. Uh, all he's saying really is that we, we have to be ready for Jesus to return. He's not really talking about prayer watches, at least as far as I know. Uh, if somebody has told you that, I'm not sure where they're getting that from because it's not in the passage. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. Okay, let's, let's talk to um, uh, Ivan uh, from, I, from uh, Anaheim, California. There we go. Hey, Ivan, welcome to The Narrow Path. Hey, what's up, man? Uh, I do have a question. Can Lucifer himself repent for what he did? And would hell just vanish like that? Or how would God process if he comes to repent him for what he has done and for what he has done on earth to people? Well, we are not told whether or not Satan can repent. Uh, I think in general, Christians would assume that he cannot, and I'm, I'm not going to disagree with them on that. I, I don't believe necessarily that he can repent. But, um, but if he could, would hell vanish? Uh, I really don't know how Satan's repentance would have any impact on hell vanishing because Satan has nothing to do with hell uh, except in that he's going to go there. And he's going to suffer there like, like others who are unrepentant sinners. So, uh, you know, the, the, if, if Satan never existed, there'd still be uh, the need for justice to be done at the last judgment to those who were sinners. I mean, it may be that you've heard and some people have the image that somehow hell is the devil's domain. That somehow people who go to hell, you know, the devil's walking around there with a pitchfork poking at them and seeing if they're done yet. And uh, that's not ever in the Bible. The, the Bible doesn't ever indicate that the devil has any uh, special role in hell. Uh, he's, if he's thrown into hell, as it says in Revelation 20 and verse 10, that he will be, uh, that's the place where he's going to suffer. He's going to be suffering. He's not going to be ruling. You know, I don't know if it's Dante's Inferno or, or what, but that has the devil saying, I'd rather, uh, you know, rule in hell than, be, than serve in heaven. But uh, the devil doesn't have that choice. No one has that choice. No one's going to be ruling in hell. Hell is the place. Of, you know, it's like saying, I'd rather be ruling on death row in the prison than, you know, free and, you know, doing, living a crime-free life or something like that. Uh, well, nobody's ruling on death row. Uh, that's, that's a place of punishment. That's not a place where you get to rise through the ranks and have power and things like that. That's, and the devil is not ruling there. The Bible never, never really associates the devil with hell, except, uh, except as I said, that he gets thrown in there before the rest of people do. So, no, it would not, if, if the devil could repent, it would not have any impact on the existence of hell. 
Uh, but uh, And I don't know. I don't know that the devil can't repent, but the Bible would suggest that he's not going to because it does describe him being thrown in the lake of fire. So that's the best, best we can do on that subject because we don't have much more. Okay, let's talk to um, another Anaheim caller, two in a row. That's interesting. Tony from Anaheim, welcome. Hi, Steve. Uh, I got a question about slavery. Um, you know, the Bible uh, is very emphatic on things that, you know, we shouldn't do, like steal and uh, lying and committing adultery and so forth. Um, and although I know that slavery benefited people uh, in the first century, some people um, that, you know, couldn't take care of themselves or whatever, um, why isn't the, 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 the Bible and when it comes to, to, to slavery. And, you know, I listened to your lectures on um, your lecture on Philemon, and I don't think you smoke, spoke much about slavery in the first century. So could you just uh, give me your thoughts on, on slaver, slavery in the first century? Uh, okay, yeah. Yeah, it is thought that as much as perhaps uh, half or more of the people in the Roman Empire in the first century may have been slaves, so it was extremely common. A person could become slaves uh, usually one of two ways. I mean, there might be other ways, but one would be they're a prisoner of war. And instead of being uh, killed by their conquerors, they were allowed to live, but they had to live subject to their conquerors, uh, in many cases as slaves, although sometimes they could win their freedom. Uh, or they could be bought out of slavery. But, uh, but then a very commonplace thing, and this is true in the Old Testament times, when, where we do have the laws that would uh, talk about slavery. In the Old Testament times, it was not uncommon at all, as, and you mentioned this, you made reference to it, that a person who could not pay his bills, could not get out of debt, couldn't uh, keep his family fed or housed, uh, that he would sell himself and sometimes his family into slavery. And that would become a, a place of economic security for him because he was starving. Otherwise, he can't, he can't keep a house. He can't feed a family. He can't, you know, keep his family clothed. And, the, and this is, you know, we don't know very many people like that because we live in a, a very different world since the Industrial Revolution. Uh, in Western society, at least, most people are at least middle class. And middle class is a pretty comfortable gig. And nobody who's middle class would ever think of selling themselves into slavery because they're just not desperate enough. But there are people, and there, and there always were before the Industrial Revolution, where the majority of people were paupers. They were peasants and paupers or serfs, and they really didn't have much to eat. They didn't have much they owned. And uh, in some cases, their family obligations or their debts overwhelmed them, medical costs or whatever. And it was to, it was to their advantage to be a slave, as long as they were not abused. I mean, let's face it, many people have more than one job now and still can't pay their bills. If you were a slave, at least you're, you'd be housed, fed, clothed, your medical would be taken care of. The only thing is you'd be available to your master uh, as, as an employee is to an employer to serve him. It'd be a longer day. It'd be a 12-hour day instead of an eight-hour day. Uh, but then... Even freemen who owned farms and stuff until modern times worked 12-hour days, six days a week on their farms, and so did their families. So, I mean, hard work has always been a part of survival. If a man was working hard 
And instead of, let's say, building up his own nest egg, he's he's working for someone else who's providing everything for him. That's a, that could be a cushy gig compared to what he had outside. And, you know, if the Bible had just said, okay, no more slavery, no one can do this anymore. Well, then a lot of these people would be thrown out of their comfortable situations into a world that they were had already shown themselves incapable of survival in. Uh, so in other words, if a person was voluntarily a slave because he wanted to be, well, then that was a secure situation for him, maybe more secure than he could uh, could find outside of that situation. Now, as I said, uh, there's nothing immoral about a man selling himself into slavery for his own survival. Uh, it certainly goes against our, uh, you know, enlightenment principles of human freedom and things like that. But those principles have not been assumed in, you know, until very modern times. No society assumed that every man is, uh, you know, demeaned if he's, if he's uh, becomes a slave. Well, the reason that slavery is such a horrendous thing in uh, relatively modern history in the West is because it wasn't voluntary. Because, uh, you know, slave traders would go to Africa and they would buy from, from tribal people uh, persons who had been kidnapped from other tribes, rival tribes. And then they, so these people who had been kidnapped were taken away from their continent and brought to England and America and sold as slaves. Now, the crime here, of course, is that it wasn't voluntary. You know, I don't know if any uh, Africans would have ever voluntarily been slaves, although, uh, frankly, uh, the, the way life is in some tribal situations, there might have been some people who, given the choice, preferred, but I'm not saying they did. I'm just saying the wrongness of it was that it was involuntary. And the Bible does strongly speak against that. There's a death penalty in the law for anyone who kidnaps another human being. So <clears throat> slavery as we knew it in, in, in America and England, was not like slavery in the Roman Empire and, and in Israel in the Old Testament times and New Testament times, in that it, it was based on kidnapping. Uh, if, if society was run by biblical principles, these slave traders would have been put to death uh, for this, and because so, it's a capital crime to kidnap. And is the Bible emphatic about it? It is. It is. It's very, I mean, when it says there's a death penalty for something, that's pretty emphatic. At least that's how I would take it. All right. Okay, thank you, Tony. Uh, apparently you weren't ready there, and I've got a lot of calls waiting. Let's talk to Carolyn from Washington. Welcome to The Narrow Path, Carolyn. Hi. <clears throat> thank you, Steve. Uh, I have a, a, a friend that uh, some some years ago he was telling me that uh, his uh, relatives were in his house. He knew it was his relatives because things were being moved and things were flying across the room, and so it had to be his relatives. And I said at the time, I thought well, it was Is that the guys. way his relatives behaved? Is that the way his relatives behaved, throwing things around the house? I, I, it was just weird. He, but he took it in a friendly way and thought it was his relatives. And I told him, I thought it was poltergeist, that these were, couldn't be his relatives. And now I have a friend, he did not take that kindly. Now I have a friend that just told me that uh, 
uh, whose dad just died uh, a month ago, and he said that he saw his German shepherd licking the wall and licking the wall and licking it harder and harder like he used to lick his dad. And so the dog must be seeing his dad. And I don't know what to tell him because the first guy didn't take poltergeists very well. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I don't know what to tell him either. I mean, I'm not sure why a dog would lick the wall. Uh, uh, You know, if if his dad is in the wall uh, and the dog's, you know, know, perceives him there and licks him, well, I don't know how we'd ever prove such a thing as that. it, I mean, a, a dog might have other reasons for licking the wall. Maybe something was spilled against the wall that tasted good. Who knows? Um, I, I can't answer that. And as far as things being thrown around the room, those kinds of things do sometimes happen. Uh, and often it's referred to as poltergeist uh, activity. Poltergeist, by the way, is a German word that means noisy ghosts. Geist is the word for ghost or spirit. And polter refers to it being noisy. And so uh, a noisy ghost, well... There are spirits, we know there are spirits in the world, including demonic spirits, and uh, there are some who would say that poltergeists are manifesting, are demonic spirits that are manifesting in various ways. Uh, That's one explanation and probably a decent one. We don't know it not to be true. And, uh, you know, something needs to explain it. I mean, I think that somebody who doesn't believe in the supernatural or doesn't believe in demons would have to say, well, these reports are all unreliable. But those who've been there and seen them would obviously say, well, if you think so, you can you can live in as much ignorance as you want to. But there's many, many reliable people, doctors and uh, pastors and missionaries and others who've seen these things and reported them. And, uh, you know, if, if someone said, oh, these things don't exist, uh, the person who says that would just look pretty stupid because they don't see them and you know it doesn't happen all the time i've never seen this happen uh and i don't expect to but i mean some people do and yeah i if your if your friend doesn't like the idea that's poltergeist he wants to believe it's his relatives i think you know I, you know the things things being moved and thrown around proves that it's his relatives i guess he's saying that's characteristic behavior of his relatives but uh why couldn't it be the neighbors next door who uh, who were unfriendly. And I don't, I don't understand why he's reaching that conclusion, except that it's pretty scary unless you hope maybe that's our my relatives. <laughs> These people are not hostile to me, hopefully. Uh, maybe maybe he thinks it's uh, it's his relatives because they although they throw things around, they don't throw them at him. So they must be his friends or relatives. Uh, I have no idea how he's thinking, but it doesn't make any sense to me. I agree with you. There are demonic forces. And that are sometimes called poltergeists. And it sounds to me like, at least in the first instance you mentioned, it sounds like an instance of that. The second case with the dog licking the wall, I'm not so sure. Okay, let's talk to Mark from Hillsboro, Oregon. Mark, welcome. Hey, hi, Steve. I appreciate your life's work. Two quick Thank questions. Um, I'm looking at a book. Uh, I'm looking at purchasing it. It's basically the prophecy of Daniel in Preterist Perspective. Jay Rogers. I wondered if you had a perspective on this author. Do you know of him? I don't know this author. I don't know this okay. author. But um, okay. yeah, I, I you know uh, I, I can't know. I don't know how he's arguing, but it, it may be very valid because I'm 
Yeah. I take I take Daniel in a predator's perspective also. And, and as know. do I. And I thought what I would I just thought I'd ask before I ask the question that I called about though, Steve is I'm I keep hearing I wonder if you know that if there are scriptural passages that would back up my determinist friends that are just insisting that God receives glory in damning people to hell. I I'm 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 at a loss to find that in scripture, and I wondered if you had a perspective on that. I suspect they they extrapolate from passages like those in Exodus where God said he's going to show his power by mm. the destruction of Pharaoh with the ten plagues and so forth. That, In other words, that God, by punishing his enemies like Pharaoh, mm-hmm. is demonstrating his superiority over them. And therefore, you know, his, he's glorified by that or he shows his power that way. And, and they would they consider would, then these people that are being damned as enemies versus... Yeah, I think so. I, I think that's how they'd argue. Uh, I think yeah. they'd say, well, you know, extrapolating from the fact that God got glory out of the destruction of his enemy Pharaoh, then uh, uh, then sending the majority of the people that Jesus died for to hell and torturing them forever and ever and ever, somehow that's similar. Um, yeah. I, I personally don't think so. But I mean, I, I, don't, I don't either. I, yeah. I, I just wondered if there was uh, something and I wanted to look at the I wanted to look at the context if they were using a certain passage, because I was <laughs> I was interested in sieving that through a, a contextual view. But I, I don't I don't know. I can't think of any. Yeah. Well, there are passages in the Old Testament that are like the reference to Pharaoh, but none about hell. Uh, yeah. You know, in I think in Isaiah and I, th- I can think of Zechariah uh, and, and a few other places that mention that the the judgment on Babylon uh, was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to the glory of God and so forth. I mean, it's true. I mean, God did glorify Himself by punishing enemies and and so forth. But none of those passages refer to hell. And Correct. So, yeah, I see. And and if we perceive hell as a place where uh, unfortunate people who've never had the chance to hear the gospel uh, are punished for that for millions and billions and trillions of years. Uh, you know, I don't mm-hmm. know that the, I don't see how that glorifies God. I can see uh-huh. how I can see if if a if a nation rises up against God or against God's people, and he mm-hmm. and he defeats that nation and humiliates them, I can see mm-hmm. how that could bring it to his glory. But uh, you know, torturing helpless uh, people, uh, even if they deserve it, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, even someone who deserves to be tortured, I don't I, I don't know that God. Uh, covers himself with glory by torturing people like that forever and ever and ever. Yeah, and and I heard it again this week, and and it, it's a friend of mine that said it, but I'm just I I, I struggle to to uh, to get on the same wavelength. I, I can't see God's glory in that at all. So, yeah, I, I appreciate be... your uh, your uh, ministry, Steve. Thank you so much. Okay, Mark. Good talking to you. Thanks for your call, uh, Brian from Twin Falls, Idaho. We did get to your call. Hello. Hey. Good afternoon, Steve. I. I had a question also about uh, the future, but back to your the one about spirits, talking about a possible poltergeist. Just curious, Steve, how does then a spirit have control of anything physical in this world? And, and if it does, I wasn't sure about that, why it doesn't not just happen continually and, and, and in all aspects Revelins and vehicles to, I mean, it seems like if they can, it's, it seems like it wouldn't be so such a rarity, I guess is what I'm saying. Well, uh, I don't know how rare demon possession is, but that's a different phenomenon. But demon-possessed people 
are physically affected. Sometimes uh, in the Bible, a person was demon possessed and they were blind or dumb, and then when the or deaf, and when the demon was cast out, they could see and hear and speak. So uh, obviously, demons can have a physical impact. That is, if we're to trust the Bible about these things. Um, now, uh, you know, even giving uh, a person physical supernatural strength, it seems to be one of the things that happens in some cases, because we have the man in the Gospels who broke chains when they tried to chain him. Now, he had a legion of demons in him. He, he was more, uh, I guess, more severely possessed than the average demon-possessed person, but it, nonetheless, it had a physical impact on his body and his strength. Um, so, I mean, I, I can't say why there aren't more cases of that. That's an interesting question. We know that people can be demon-possessed, but maybe not all people can be, uh, and or, or not all people are. Uh, equally vulnerable, let's put it that way. There, I think that in order to possess a person, a demon has to have some special access that isn't given uh, you know, just broadly across the board to everybody. The devil can deceive people without getting into them, but to get into them, I think, requires something special uh, in their life. Uh, typically, uh, perhaps if they're involved in the occult. Uh, people who are involved in the occult who consult mediums often uh, tend to be uh, among those who are found to be demon-possessed uh, in much more frequent cases than just someone who's you know, walking down the street and gets inhabited by a demon, you know. Uh, so I can't answer why there's not more cases, uh, but I certainly do believe that even the Bible itself suggests that physical things can be impacted by spirits. And why that would be, I'm not sure, but we have an angel in the Bible that killed 185,000 Syrians, uh, excuse me, Assyrians, while they slept. Uh, that was physical death, and that was an angel. Angels are spirits. So I can't really answer how the spiritual world interfaces with the physical, but the fact that it does is testified in Scripture, too. Hey, I'm out of time. I'm sorry to say I wish I wasn't. You've been listening to The Narrow Path. We are listener-supported. You can write to us at The Narrow Path, P.O. Box 1730, Temecula, California, 92593. Or go to our website. You can donate there if you want to. It's thenarrowpath.com. Thanks for joining us. Let's talk again tomorrow.